Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where you can lose your job for suggesting that Adam and Eve may not have been real. More on that later. You can find us online at freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. Or you can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville. 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, or streaming 24-7 at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me here in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Yellow. And teen pop sensation, Justin Schieber. Hello. And as always, Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Greetings. Coming up in today's show, our summer genocide series continues and concludes, um, and we will dig into a bit of archaeology. We've also got some props and shit list, latest installment of polyatheism. First, our new favorite politician, Michelle Bachman. And I don't want to just rip on Michelle Bachman because she's an easy target. Yeah. Quite frankly, low hanging fruit. <laughs> well, that's true, but the polls show that she's also a real contender, which is terrifying, terrifying. to me. <laughs> um, and, and a lot of the the same things are true for Bachman and Rick Perry. In fact, if they combine, they might become a Bachman Perry overdrive. Oh. Taking care of business oh. would be their theme song. Oh, wow. <laughs> now, An American woman. Uh, of course. Now, um, if putting the, the other politics aside, let's just focus on um, Michelle Bachman's religion, which um, pretty much informs all of her politics. <laughs> <laughs> her most prominent feature. Yeah, that's why we're talking about this. Yeah, it's it, not very separate, religion and politics, with someone like Michelle Bachman. Yeah, absolutely. Now, of course, her husband, Marcus Bachman, of whom enough has been said already, is an um, anti-gay psychologist, right? He, he converts people from um, the evils of homosexuality. And this is uh, a belief that Michelle Bachman shares with him. Um, she, um, last month, signed a pledge in which um, it was stated that not only should um, – is homosexuality something that can be cured, but pornography should be outlawed. All pornography should be outlawed. Goodbye, First Amendment. Yeah, Exactly. And um, also a suggestion in there that um, – how do I put this? Slavery was better for African-Americans than being free. Mm, wow. Now, to be fair of the um, uh, family leaders, um, the, the group who offered this pledge, they have since gone back and said, eh, we didn't really mean it quite <laughs> like that. 
Not when we but, we didn't think people were going to freak out or but, even know right, yeah, that we exactly. said that. I mean, <laughs> but in fairness to Michelle Bachman, she signed it before they recanted that statement. I mean, we've covered on the show before this whole strain of like kind of revisionist history with David Barton, where they go back. Clearly, when you're a Christian in, in the country, if you're going to argue that the country was founded upon Christianity, right. you got a problem because the country was also. Founded with slavery written into the Absolutely. the Constitution. So the way they have to thread that needle is to suggest that somehow the founders were Christians, but that maybe slavery was Chris, Christianified, well, so it wasn't such a and bad And, of course, thing. Michelle Bachman famously said that the founding fathers fought tirelessly to end slavery, including John Quincy Adams, who is <laughs> wow. at best a founding son. Uh, who was a, well, a junior high age boy at the time that his dad Yeah, was. yeah. And, and he, was, he was an abolitionist, but um, we should note that at the time all of the founding fathers died, slavery still very much around and, and active. Several of them owned yeah. slaves. Uh, more than several, actually, <laughs> but yes. Yeah, I find that the the um, it's, it's the rationalization process here that that kicks in because then they have to then argue, and I've heard some of these arguments before that, like for example, the the writings that she that are attributed to the people that she learned from mm-hmm. say that it wasn't really slavery in the sense of of being as exploitational. Uh, classic sense. So there's a lot of like racism there, but they say that basically they were rescued from dark Africa where mm-hmm. the, the, the country was full of, you know, voodoo well, of, and witchcraft. Of, of heathens and, 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 and heathens. brought to Christian America where they could be where they could get salvation. And but then also that the some of the writings are that the the relationship between the master and the slave wasn't really an exploitational one. It was one of mutual respect, one of the guys. <laughs> wow. <says. laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazingly even wanted then, freedom. If they would have emancipated them, they argue that they would have been on just out on the street into the like this, you know, without any way to make a living. Which and, would have been much starving. worse than slavery, of course. They I, sound like some of the same justifications that are used to uh, cover over the slavery of the Israelites. But mm-hmm. yes, there wasn't that again. <laughs> Maybe they they're borrowing as, from another or, apologetic playbook. It was more like indentured <laughs> servitude than slavery, yeah. uh, that kind yeah. of thing. Right. Well, and in one article I was reading about this, and I forget where it was from, they included a photograph of a slave whose back was literally uh, destroyed. Played and from, discarded. Yeah. And, I, uh, speaking of that, I actually, love. W- when yeah. I read that, I, I went and dug through because I had I shelved away the, uh, a passage that um, Frederick Douglass had written in his autobiography mm. where his master had gone to a revival meeting. Yes. And yeah, if, if you guys let one. me, let me just quote from this because he's such a beautiful writer. He mm. says uh, that it was in 1832 that uh, my master attended a Methodist camp meeting. I had indulged a faint hope that his conversion would lead him to emancipate his slaves. Uh, and at any rate, it would make him more kind and humane. I was disappointed in both these respects. Neither made him to be humane to his slaves nor to emancipate them. Uh, and then he talks about how that he was uh, he was whipping a, a female slave and reading Bible verses to her mm-hmm. about her disobedience. And he said it made it made him more cruel and hateful in his ways. For I believe him to have been a much worse man after his conversion than before, because prior to his conversion. He relied upon his own depravity to shield and sustain him in his savage barbarity. But after his conversion, he found religious sanction and support hmm. for his slaveholding cruelty. Hmm. He made more pretensions to piety. Right. 
And, and by the way, Frederick Douglass's um, autobiography is one that should be in every free thinker's library. It's a short, it's a quick read, and it's uh, it gives you a strong picture of what it was like to be a slave. It's it's probably the best written slave narrative um, out there. But uh, it's Frederick Douglass is a real free thinker mm-hmm. um, in the truest sense of the word, and it's. Um, it's worth reading for um, the historical level as well as the philosophical. And, and Susan Jacoby makes that point in her Freethinkers book that he was hanging out with the other like uh, early feminists, like uh, and and mm-hmm. they he was combined. At Seneca Falls. He yeah, was at combining the first their, women's con- conference. Yes. Their efforts, but yeah, as far as back, with back to Bachman, I think that's what's sort of pernicious about her. That sort of strain of thinking is that the these type of. Um, uh, revisionists would want would are basically going to whitewash any connections they have to anything bad. But even things that are clearly the worst things that you can imagine, right. they'll rationalize that as to somehow be not so bad because the people were Christian, right? And therefore their so motivations it could have been were, as bad as it sounded because they were Christians. Yeah. The um, the other thing I found interesting about her piece, uh, the the piece in the New Yorker that talks about how she became a Christian was that she had a classic sort of conversion experience. Mm-hmm. And he and he, the author quotes from her um, upbringing because uh, many people might not know this, but she came from a she was a product of a divorced family where she sort of idolized her father. Yes. And she says she writes in her um, autobiography that he was a he was a man of faults and he was perhaps the most dominant human figure in my life. And then they divorced like the, his dad basically her dad basically left for yeah. California and, and married, married soon after a woman who was much younger. And then soon after that, she reports she had her conversion experience. Mm-hmm. She says that uh, even though she had been brought up a Lutheran, that she didn't, she knew little about the Bible, but then when she joined a prayer group, uh, she became a born-again Christian. And she says, I didn't know I was a believer, but they knew I wasn't a believer, and they started praying for me. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit started knocking at my heart's door, and I could hear the Lord tug me and call me to himself. Um, and she knew, understood that Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, that my life would never be the same after I made that commitment because I knew what darkness looked like. I knew it came from my home life. I absolutely understood sin and I wanted no part of it. And then she basically says she knew what it meant all of a sudden because now she had a father again. Right, right. Mm. Well, and you can tell it's a real born-again story because she knows the exact date of her uh, of her the, yeah, conversion. Good, good point. November 1st, 1972. <laughs> Anytime someone can quote yeah. you the date, you know, they're yeah, real. Yeah, they're born again. They are born again. I don't Absolutely. know if, if, if listeners remember, but earlier, I forget which episode, uh, when I covered the, in psychology, the, the attachment theories connection with con- with conversion. This is where the, uh, the the theories of John Bowlby where an infant, a child forms an attachment on a parent. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that attachment can be secure or uh, where the parent is is sort of uh, dependable. But in, there's um, evidence that when you form an insecure attachment with your parent, that is the parent is, is not available. You become or, an atheist, right? No. Oh, you, oh no. Oh. You are likely to well, change your... Paul Witz said. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Witz covers the part where, where the... the the parental death theory of atheism. But what we talked about on that episode was that um, it's any type of religious change is linked to an insecure attachment. Right, right. Mm. That is, if you have d- damaged parental relationships, there's a there's a, ch- a higher chance that you will change 
if you happen to be non-religious, yeah, that means just becoming religious, or if it means you're religious, you might be non-religious. But it's linked, the parental relationship is linked with change. If you read the, the way that she describes that, I mean, it's, you know, uh, when she says that now she had a new father to replace yeah. her old father, it's pretty much all right there, mm-hmm. you know, which is... Uh, I, fine, but again, I think that that that's, that sort of experience is marked by a little bit of cognitive impermeability. Is the term where where you once you make that conversion, you're there's no going back. And like you guys were saying with the whole date thing, they weave it into their narrative. Mm-hmm. I mean, George Bush does that too in such a way that he says that he was walking on the beach and then with Billy Graham and then they right, were right. talking. But then when you ask other people about it, it's not so. Abrupt. Everybody else was like, "Well, we never noticed anything." I mean, he gradually mm-hmm. did this, or he gradually did that. But that, what, but when for you... them, it is this this day, and sometimes even the specific time. I once spoke to a man who told me he found Jesus when he was in the bathtub. Wh- told me his whole conversion bathtub. story. He was in the bathtub, and suddenly he felt this. <laughs> I'm not kidding. This warm glow all around. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. And he could give me the day and time where where he accepted Jesus into his heart. Oh when, my God! Did, yeah, no. Do you best. think maybe he just was peeing yeah, in the bathtub? A warm golden glow around <laughs> that, him. That's what I was. Thinking. That was my thoughts. <laughs> yes, I. I anyway. Um, so Michelle Bachman, though, is part of of a larger movement that also includes um, Rick Perry, which is the um, the. Uh, apostolic dominionists. Yeah, I don't know the full name, but the the abbreviation is the apostles. Yeah, they call like themselves we, the apostles. Yeah, and and so they, there's links when he did his prayer rally, which we covered last episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were speakers there that were were associated with that group, and so they came up and, and gave their you know their prayers for rain in Texas. Who is this group? Indeed, Jeremy. The question is, who is this group? <laughs> I wonder that sound mysterious. I, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, I think one, just for now, though, I think that, that when people watch, I, I would invite people to watch Perry and, and Bachman and those people talk and and pay attention to some of the language they use that might slip under the radar of mm-hmm. most people if you don't know what you're looking for. But they often use terms that are associated with things that – with the, this group. Uh, and we've talked about before in the show under the term of Christian dominionism. Mm-hmm. Where they use a phrase, I mean, so for example, we've uh, most people are tuned into the abortion debate as being associated with with Christianity, where they use terms like innocent life, like they say the protection of innocent life. If you're right. an evangelical, that means that it's it's abortion, abortion. terminology yeah. because then yeah, it, that right. gets you out of having to argue about like uh, death whistles, penalty right? or yeah. mm-hmm. or because it's innocent life. Well, with dominionists, they they use. Terms that imply that um, that that their position as a politician is to is to um, bring everything under God's authority. Mm-hmm. So, like the offices of government, uh, institutions like schools and universities and and businesses, cultural institutions yeah, cult- too, we'll, like we'll Hollywood. Be, or, or, the, yeah, the media will all be brought under d- the dominion of. Yeah, Jesus. here's here's actually a, a quote from Michelle Bachman that I think gives you a, a feel for um, this approach. She says, and this is from the New Yorker article, we understood, she and her husband, um, that the God of the Bible isn't just about Bible stories and about Bible knowledge or about just church on Sunday. He is the Lord of all life, every bit of life, including 
sociology, theology, biology, politics. You name the area and walk of life. He is the Lord of life. And so, as we went back to our studies at Oral Roberts University, I should <laughs> point out, yeah, um, we looked at studying in a completely different light, not for the purpose of a career, but for a purpose of wondering how does this fit into creation? How does this fit into the code of all of life that is about to come in front of us? And so we have new eyes that were opened as we understood life now from a biblical worldview. Yeah, her, her professor in that piece, when he's interviewed, mm. gives an example of, let's say you're studying the insanity defense in, in law. <coughs> you might look back in the Bible and find there's David uh, when he had to pretend that he, whatever that story is, I think right. he had to mm -hmm. pretend that he was crazy or something. To, yeah, so that maybe. his mother wouldn't find out that he knew that his uncle killed his father. Or am I thinking of something else? Oh, that's Hamlet. That's okay, Hamlet. never mind. But uh, so they, they, what they do is they basically look back into everything. They try to fit it into a scriptural guideline. So obviously, like things like taxes, and they would say, yep. oh. but um, and she was a tax lawyer, only not really. <laughs> that's a so whole. So clearly, story. insanity plea is is demons. <laughs> is, that, is that what <laughs> yeah. we're getting at? Yeah, I, I don't know how they link Demonic it in with possession, that. right? I mean, yeah. that seems to me a better plea than uh, the, the Twinkie defense. <laughs> 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 he was possessed by demons. Well, the court sees no reason to object to that. I, I have a feeling <laughs> at, at any rate that, that given her uh, – this. <clears throat> The next year or so, this will be, as you said, low-hanging fruit or, as I put it, a, a target-rich environment <laughs> with both Bachman and Perry. We'll provide people like us with hours of fun. Speaking of um, picking off easy targets, uh, let's continue with our summer genocide series, shall we? Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for Counter Apologetics. Um, yes, last time we talked about a book by Paul Copen called Is God a Moral Monster? We specifically talked about the Canaanite genocide when the Israelites, as recorded in the book of Joshua, enter into the promised land and exterminate the Canaanites who are already existing there so that they can then occupy that land. And Paul Copen argued in his book, Is God a Moral Monster, uh, argued that this genocide was not actually a genocide. It wasn't as bad as it may sound, that there were offers of peace made, that the extermination of the Canaanites was not complete and total. It was more of a gradual displacement. A kinder, gentler genocide. A kinder, gentler <laughs> genocide. Which this is, is the kind Mel Gibson's exactly, father would approve of. <laughs> exactly how Tom Stark, uh, the person who wrote the uh, criticism of Is God a Moral Monster, mm. uh, that was actually longer than the book itself. Exactly that. how he framed it. A kinder, a more sophisticated Extermin mass extermination of people, which incidentally, side note, I was really happy to see that Tom Stark actually came to our blog. Did he really? And yes. commented on the episode quite a bit and got into long debates and discussions with our listeners there. And uh, it that, was really awesome to see all those exchanges. And uh, right. so welcome, Tom Stark, to the Reasonable Doubts blog. And we hope And that's over at our new around. site at freethoughtblogs.com yep, freethought slash mm -hmm. reasonable doubts. So that was pretty cool. Excellent. Uh, but anyways, with Tom Stark's help, 
we demonstrated that, try as he might, Copen cannot exonerate the God of the Bible from the charge that he is a moral monster. Mm-hmm. But the question we left the last episode with is the ancient Israelites, do they have blood on their hands? And it appears now the archaeology of this age does not support the idea that any kind of uh, campaign or genocide actually took place. The story of the fall of Canaanite culture and the rise of the Israelites is a much, much more complex story than that. And so we are left with some questions. If the conquest never happened, what did? Uh, what, what happened to the Canaanites? Where did the Israelites come from? And what was the purpose of telling this story in Joshua of this campaign mm-hmm. to exterminate the Canaanites if it never actually happened? Why does the Bible record why, these why things? Why make up a genocide that didn't happen? Right. Right. Yeah. To, to talk about this, uh, it may be easier to actually kind of combine the conquest of Canaan and, and the Exodus story uh, because mm-hmm. these are really just two parts of one larger narrative. Um, and we actually covered the Exodus uh, back in episode 83. Right. Uh, so in that episode, we came to the conclusion that the Exodus was extremely unlikely to be to be a historical event. Right. Um, at least how it was portrayed in the biblical text uh, for among several reasons. Uh, one being the logistics of such of such a thing seems near impossible. The amount of people and the idea that a desert could support this amount of people. Right. Not a very um, big desert, not a very um, large space for them to wander around in for 40 years, right. uh, given the the way they were um, repopulating, shall we say? Right, right. Um, but for now, uh, let's ig- ignore this so that we can nail down some dates for these events and talk about what the archaeology uh, has to say about uh, the specifically the Canaanite invasion. Mm-hmm. When in history does the Bible place these events? According to 1 Kings uh, chapter 6, verse 1, uh, quote, In the 480th year after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, and in the month of Ziv, uh, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So according to 1 Kings, it seems that you know if we know when Solomon's temple when that was starting to be constructed, mm-hmm. uh, we can take that and we can actually place the Exodus in 1440 BCE. So this is the mm. 15th century. Okay. In 1896 in Egypt, we find uh, we discover the Merneptah steel. So it's essentially a, a victory plaque of a list of different peoples that that uh, Egypt is boasting to have conquered. And it speaks of Israel, and this marks the earliest non-biblical mention of a people group calling themselves of Israel residing in the land uh, of Canaan. So if the exodus and the conquest of Canaan happened, it must be, as the stela seems to suggest, before 1207, which is which is when we can date mm-hmm. this stela. Right. So can we narrow this down further? Well, I think we can. Uh, in Exodus uh, 111, the Bible talks about the children of Israel and how they've been forced uh, upon these, these labor projects. In, that they were involved in under Egyptian rule. The city of Ramses is mentioned. Now, this is uh, usually equated with the city named Pi Ramses mm-hmm. or House of Ramses. Uh, we know that this city was constructed under King Ramses II, who actually ruled from 1279 to 1213. So now it seems 
that there's a little bit of an issue. It seems that we can move forward with good reasons to think that if the events in question happened, it was somewhere in the 13th century BCE yeah. and not the 15th century, mm-hmm. as the the Bible seems to suggest with with its uh, passage in uh, First Kings, which just matches up with the the date of the the stela too, right? Thirteenth century, right? But Towards the, the end of the thirteenth century. So it actually gives the one us that a Moses rather interacts small window. With, is that the pharaoh well, from the tra- tradition holds that no, that, no, that Ramses was, son. but there's uh, there's no way that 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 actually works. Right? No, it doesn't. So yeah, we have a fairly small window now hmm. uh, between twelve oh seven when we know that the Israelites were in Canaan. And from 1279 to 1213, which is when this Ramses in question is would have been responsible for the, the stela. Mm-hmm. So it seems that our the new window with which we can place the Canaanite invasion mm-hmm. would be between 1207, which, which is the stela, and between 1279 and 1213, which is when Ramses would have had... Um, such things constructed for him. Mm-hmm. So it's not in the 15th century as previously as previously thought from that uh, verse. In Quite First a discrepancy Kings. between right. the so internal chronology and good any possibility years. of it yeah. happening. Yeah. 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 How do ma- biblical maximalists reconcile this with the passage in First Kings? Uh, well, many people are going to dismiss a literal reading of the 480 years. Uh, instead, they'll, they'll insist that this is a symbolic Just length. means a long time. Right. Yeah. They'll, they'll suggest that it is a symbolic length of time referring to 12 generations okay. and generations uh, biblically lasting you know, 40, 40 years. 40 years, yeah. yeah. So which that is, brings which is us a, to 480. Yeah. Right. Traditional numbering system for them. A generation equals 40 years, which... Right. Okay, so now, you know, since the discovery of that, uh, we can all agree for the most part that the 13th century is our time frame. So what happened here? Another difficulty we run into regarding both the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan is what we learn from the Armana letters. And if I remember correctly, Copen actually talks about these. Mm-hmm. Well, the Ar- Armana letters are... Well, Copen calls them a correspondence between the Egyptian pharaohs and the leaders in Canaan. It's a little bit different than that. It's not just a correspondence. The leaders in Canaan are actually vassals of the pharaohs in Egypt at that time. Egypt controls territory within Canaan. And so these letters are actually records of commands and and different discussions uh, going on between the Egyptian pharaohs and the leaders in Canaan. So the first interesting thing to take from this is that at the the best time frame we have for when the Israelites are supposedly leaving Egypt and going in and conquering Canaan, the Canaanites actually (laughs) are under control of the Egyptians. Some of these things in the Armana letters are like them requesting for troops uh, for various different reasons. In other words, uh, the Egyptians already have a military presence in Canaan. Right. Now, that's the type of thing that Copen will ignore. 
Of course. Yeah. Because it gets tricky. He'll throw that in to try to say, well, look, the Armana letters show that many of these cities like Jerusalem and Shechem were actually military outposts. Hmm. And he's got some support there because the Armana letters, of course, do are requesting for troop movements and that kind of thing. But he completely ignores the uncomfortable Bible contradicting fact that that's because it's under Egyptian rule. Hmm. Uh, so just a, an example of, of cherry-picking from an apologist. So assuming the Israelites have managed to get into Canaan without resistance from Egyptian officials, which is just completely absurd. Impressive, yes. Um, <laughs> what does archaeology actually have to say about the relevant Canaanite cities mm-hmm. during the uh, 13th century? Were they all indeed destroyed within you know a few weeks or a month? You know, a very however short long span we would say Joshua, yeah. you know... Justin didn't literally mean weeks or months. He meant a short span of time. (laughs) (laughs) So did this occur within a short time frame? Well, uh, Israel Finkelstein and Neil Asher Silverman in their book, The Bible Unearthed, have this to say. Quote, these four cities, Hatsar, Aphek, Lashish, and Megiddo, are reported to have been defeated by the Israelites under Joshua. But the archaeological evidence shows that the destruction of these cities took place over a span of more than a century. Mm -hmm. The possible causes include invasion, social breakdown, and civil strife. Mm. No military force did it, and certainly not in one military campaign. Right. Uh, So, uh, well, indeed, uh, excavations at Megiddo and Hatsar do show destruction. Mm -hmm. Megiddo in 1130 and Hatsar during the 13th century. And these were one of the first uh, excavations to be done. Mm-hmm. So it appeared at the beginning that archaeology did seem to be supporting the Bible. Because we're seeing um, destruction. In at, the least, at, least in, yeah. at least with Hazar. Right. Yeah. When you're just excavating those cities, it, mm-hmm. it, it makes sense. Look at the Bible. Find out where were these campaigns right. waged. Go find those sites. Look them up. And yeah, when you find it. Deber, Lutz, Lashish, Hazor, you find all these cities burnt to the ground in the end of the 13th right. century, it's suddenly like, whoa, this Joshua campaign this is actually looks accurate. pretty right. right. Yeah. Until they start excavating other sites, mm-hmm. like Jericho or Ai. Right. Yeah, so at Megiddo, uh, the, the strata corresponding to 1130 uh, still shows the mud bricks having been baked red and other signs of being set ablaze. Additionally, the cities of Canaan in the late Bronze Age were unfortified. And this is a problem for Jericho and its walls, of course. More of a problem, however, is the fact that there's actually no sign of any settlement in Jericho during the 13th century at all. Hmm. Yeah. Let alone one where the walls collapsed with a single right. blast now of there, horns. You, there yeah, was you find some burning in the, what? what is it, the 14th century? Right. Uh, they, they do have a settlement in like a hundred years before that. Yeah. Mm. Um, but it's so insignificant of a size. Of a it's settlement. just a little it's tiny no really wall. Yeah. yeah, it's a little right. market, yeah. basically. Right. As Carl uh, Wurtzinger, German-born archaeologist who worked on Jericho in the early 20th century, says, uh, in the time of Joshua, Jericho was a heap of ruins on which stood perhaps a few isolated huts. Mm. So during the 13th century, it simply can't comport with the, the narrative. So it appears that the <laughs> the only thing that really came a-tumbling down uh, is the historicity of the biblical conquest narratives of Jericho. Mm-hmm. So if the Exodus is not historical, 
as we talked about in episode 82, and the conquest of Canaan, as the Bible tells, seems to be lacking in historical gumption. Who were the ones that actually did do the destruction right. of the Canaanite cities? Yeah, somebody Because destro- it wasn't Joshua. Somebody right. did destroy these cities of Lutz, Lashish, Hazor. Some of these that are reported in the Bible actually were destroyed. Mm-hmm. Right. I and Jericho and uh, the land of the Gibeonites, the one that the Bible places a lot of stress on. Right. Mm, Not so much. Couldn't possibly be at that time. Didn't have the same fortifications. But what about these other cities? Mm. Why? And and it's sudden. Some of these cities, they did burn. Yeah. I mean, they, some of they the, were, and and they were around the same period, around the same time, within right. the span of a hundred years or so. Right. Yeah. Right. So what exactly is happening? And to to answer this, uh, we kind of need to broaden our perspective. Uh, we need to look beyond Canaan. Uh, to the larger Mediterranean world near the 13th century BCE and the beginning of the 12th. The end of the 13th century shows a sudden dramatic change ushering in extreme economic and social breakdown uh, around the areas of Greece, Turkey, Syria, and Egypt, uh, leading to war and upheaval. Mm -hmm. A widespread transformation is taking place. The old kingdoms of the Bronze Age were swept away to usher in a new Mediterranean world. So what happened? Why this sudden dramatic change? We know that it's not just isolated to, to Canaan now. You know, it's, it's a much mm-hmm. larger thing. Well, Ugaritic and Egyptian records of the early 12th century BCE mention a mysterious group of, of marauders. Clay tablets found in the ruins of the port city of Ugarit provide us with a glimpse of the situation in 1185. This is a letter sent uh, from the king of Ugarit to a foreign king. Quote, enemy boats have arrived. The enemy has set fire to the cities and wrought havoc. My troops are in Hittite country, my boats in Lycia, and the country has been left to its own devices. Another letter from the same time addressed to a prefect of Ugarit uh, refers to a mysterious group of sea people. This is from called... the king of the Hittites, so like much right. farther north mm-hmm. than Canaan or, or anywhere close to he refers to a group of, of sea people called the Shikalia, uh, who live on boats, is, is what this translates to. A mere 10 years later, in 1175, all the cities within this correspondence mm-hmm. lay in ruins. Hmm. Egypt also has, well, they have an entire wall, inscriptions of, of actual yeah. art of the battles taking place between these yeah. sea people. This, and, is, yeah, you this have... is an interesting piece of history mm-hmm. that, right. that we've lost because right. we have this imaginary story. If that's... you're looking at a handful of sites in Canaan, uh, in Canaan, it's like, wow, yeah, this place was wiped out at the end of the 13th century. Mm-hmm. When you realize as far as Greece in Hittite country, even Egypt is fighting these people, right. Uh, right. you realize that this, this destruction was across the entire region. Yeah. Whoever burnt these cities down, it couldn't have been just a small group of Israelites, even by their own records. Well, even I'm voting the aliens face. now that I hear this. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> Chariots clearly. of the gods, they owned half of Central America. Well, the Egyptians give us some evidence as to who they might have been. There's actually a, quite a, little, a lot of debate on who these sea peoples were mm-hmm. uh, and whether they were the actual cause of the breakdown or whether they were the effect of the breakdown that would have led to you know, dispersed oh. groups of, right, right. of uh, you know, disgruntled people. But regarding who they are, the most suggestive evidence comes from, um, well, these Egyptian letters uh, who refer to the Philistines. 
is actually yeah part of the this group the sea people one group of this confederation you mean um, like Goliath <laughs> of, of the tribe. Philistines yes yes, yeah. yes you're right um, yeah, Ramses the three. Uh, Ramses the three. Oh my God! It's the sequel to Ramses the two. <laughs> he's, he's third of five. He's he's a member of the Borg, or maybe the prequel, because this is. Uh, oh yeah, you're right. Christ, it's BCE, and, and they so. already knew <laughs> that, right? right. So. Um, yeah, Ramses III in a temple inscription mentions that these sea people are, he, he calls them a confederation between the Philistines. I'm probably going to get these words wrong. The Sheker, the Shekelesh, uh, the Denyan, the Weshesh, basically depicts these as a bunch of brutes uh, right. that join together. Like, like and, mercenaries yeah, almost. Yeah, almost yeah. like pirates of the Mediterranean. Yeah. Um, and mentions fire actually makes a big deal of how they go in and they uh, their strategy was to burn these coastal cities which Mm. actually fits the archaeological record which is not to say that everything can be explained by saying the sea peoples did it right but Either they destabilized the region or an already declining empires in this region Mm -hmm. led to their rise. And a big part of what we can attribute the Canaanite fall to is is that during this time, Egypt actually pulls out. Right. So they're pulling out the stability, the economic stability of the area. It's like if we leave Iraq, everything's just going to fall to pieces. (laughs) In this particular case, it is true. <laughs> Maybe we're all, uh, <laughs> Maybe we're all a little bit of sea people yeah. inside. I, I just – when you say sea peoples, I imagine like creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> just like a legion of – We are the sea peoples. <laughs> so of the two centers of the land of, of the Philistines, one had been destroyed around this time and, and two new cities were built on, on top of these ruins. The old material culture was replaced with an entirely new material culture. The mix of Egyptian Canaanite culture mm-hmm. was seemed to kind of fade out at this point. Uh, and what, what came in its place was an, an Aegean-inspired yeah. architecture and pottery. Mm-hmm. So it seems as though, you know, if this is the sea people really doing this, uh, it seems that they are uh, Aegean in origin. Right. So in other words, there's there's little chance of anyone arguing convincingly that maybe the sea peoples were the Israelites or so. I'm right. not, I'm not, not sure really too many people a, a trying to – yeah, no. Right. No, it doesn't really fit. So if the Israelites were not foreigners forcibly taking over Canaan, who were they and where did they come from? Hmm. Yeah. For this question, there are there are a few competing theories and some, of course, are taken more seriously than others. Uh, the biblical maximalists would accept an exodus and a conquest, and they're, for the most part, sympathetic to the patriarchal lineage of, of the Israelites. Mm-hmm. And some accept a what, what they call a peaceful integration model, uh, and others a revolting peasants model, which is, uh, you know, the, the city-states become so corrupt that, you know, Eventually, you're going to have some kind of Civil revolution. People fleeing to the hill country. Right. And, sure. Yeah. Freedom. <laughs> Peasants are revolting. <laughs> they stink on ice. Uh, the most recent model, however, uh, put forth is called the invisible Israelite model. And this is uh, one of the most interesting and, and plausible, in my opinion. Uh, beginning in the 1970s, there were two entire decades of massive fieldwork done uh, 
in uh, in surveys done in the highlands of, of early Israel. Mm-hmm. These surveys have given us a an incredible wealth of information. The early Israelites appear around 1200 as herders and farmers uh, with a very minimalist and self-sufficient culture. Right. Mm-hmm. As certain parts of the highlands begin being excavated, we come across the earliest settlements, and these are these are oval-shaped settlements, okay, uh, built with rows of of rooms forming the perimeter of an enclosing courtyard. Hmm. So it's it's this oval-shaped uh, settlement where they think they had like livestock, just right? To sure. Keep. So it, yeah, it suggests livestock and in, in uh, of, of some sort at least. Uh, the, and there were also tools found at these sites. Uh, which suggest uh, farming practices, right. some early farming practices. Yeah. Right. Now, the shape of these settlements here is it has a striking resemblance to uh, some observations that we have even currently in the, in the 19th century of, uh, of well, the 20th and 19th century of encampments of of Bedouin pastoral uh, nomads, hmm. which are you know essentially shepherds uh, in the in the Negev deserts. Uh, they were remarkably similar in size and in their shape and in the actual number of rooms and, like, proportion of these rooms to these things. It's almost as if the original people had their tent encampments and yeah. and not knowing how to lay out a city any other way. They just, they just started building kept, buildings right. in the same arrangement right. that they would have had their tent Interesting. Camps. So the only, yeah, the only big difference between them is that, you know, the tents were traded in for stones, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- the suggestion here is that this modern pastoral nomad lifestyle has gone largely unchanged uh, since ancient times and that the Israelites used to be pastoral nomads. But then, uh, you know, their settlements went through a dramatic transition from nomadic tents to agriculturally active villages for some reason. Well, and, and you see a lot of cultures doing that in, in, right. in that area at yeah. some point. At that time. The yeah. longer they're settled, the, m- the more right. agriculture they're one of, one of the interesting things, and Justin has just informed me that actually there, there might be some counter evidence to this, but one of the interesting things is that early on in the in the strata of these, these hill communities mm-hmm. that are identified with the Israelites, you find, um, like you would in the surrounding territories of the Philistines, you find swine bones. You find evidence that they were eating pork. Unclean! At some particular point, and this is when archaeologists think they started forming a distinctive identity of themselves. So it would be at the end of the 13th century. It fits everything else we know. Uh, their, Their diet changes from some of the other places in the region. They stop eating pork. Mm. What we're trying to draw from this is is that this is a long established community. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the rules given to Moses on uh, in the Book of the Covenant are laws governing an already established agrarian society. Mm-hmm. The Bible would have us believe that they marched in there and then laid down and their then cities came up with new rules and started and, yeah. building agriculture. The archaeology says they were at these sites for a very long time. Mm-hmm. They gradually developed agriculture. They gradually shifted their diet. And uh, then you think later on they, they came up with stories to explain well, why yeah, that happened. Yeah, as, as Silberman and Finkelstein point out, that is one of, uh, one of the – primary ways that uh, ethnic groups start separating themselves and choosing their own identities is through 
some of their dietary customs, some of their purity rituals and these types of right, things. Right. This is really early evidence that basically the conclusion is the Israelites are emerging from Canaan, developing mm. some sort of distinctive identity in in the highlands of... of so they're... they're, they're Within the land of Canaan, they are an outgroup. They're not the part of the the full Canaanite culture. They are beginning to perceive themselves. They're starting as an to separate yes. themselves more right. and more yes. from it, which fits in nicely with polyatheism. Well, yeah, it fits in with all <laughs> of our knowledge of their how they they worshipped other gods in the Canaanite Absolutely. pantheon, but yep. eventually started more exclusively worshiping Yahweh. Right. Yeah. Now. What reasons are there to change from a nomadic shepherd lifestyle into a permanent settlement with farming capabilities around the 12th century BCE? Well, uh, from what we can tell, uh, pastoral nomads and more permanent settlements had an essential trade relationship. The pastorals would provide protein in exchange for grain being offered by the permanent farming settlements. Uh, now, this is a kind of continuous exchange that's that's been, for the most part, sustainable. Now, what could have halted this exchange, causing the pastorals to abandon their nomadic lifestyle in, in favor of farming for their own grains for a self-sustainable lifestyle? Many things could have been the cause, of course, but that what seems compelling to me is that uh, this happens at the time of the economic breakdown and social upheaval of the Canaanite city-states in the late Bronze Age. This could have, of course, had a devastating effect on their ability, on the, the permanent settlement's ability to farm a consistent surplus that they could utilize and trade with the nomadic peoples, thus leaving nom the nomadic peoples. They have to start doing subsistence right. farming for themselves right. Uh, right. because they can't get it. So in, the irony is that archaeology almost seems to be saying because the Canaanites fell, right. Israelite society had to differentiate, had to... Right, it was an effect, had to develop not, a, on its not own. a cause of the fall. Uh, yeah. So to quote uh, Finkelstein and, and Silverman in their book, The Bible Unearthed, uh, quote, the process we describe here is in fact the opposite of what we have in the Bible. The emergence of early Israel was an outcome of the collapse of the Canaanite culture, not its cause. And most of the Israelites did not come from outside of Canaan. Rather, they emerged from within it. Mm. But that still leaves a question unanswered. Why the conquest narratives? Where do these stories come from now? And what was their purpose? And to try to give a really brief, plausible but not certain answer <laughs> to that. Well, one thing to start with is that long before any of this rather new archaeology that Justin is talking about here, long before any of this was known, those pesky critical German scholars had mm. long dismissed that anything... Are you saying all Germans are critical? <laughs> <laughs> Biblical scholars of, in Germany kind of had the market on, on uh, <laughs> right. criticism for quite a while. Uh, they had long since dismissed the idea that Joshua was a historical narrative. From the text alone. Right, okay. just from clues within the text. These... Oh, you mean like the sun standing still in the <laughs> sky? That doesn't hold up? Yeah, I know. It kind of, you know, seems seems obvious now that you put it that way, Dave. <laughs> well, but yeah, that and uh, these several of the stories in these narratives sound like ideological myths. Right. They sound like myths. They end with statements, 
And that pile of rocks is there to this very day. They <laughs> they seem to be explaining features of the geography, mm-hmm. earlier ruins, uh, that sort of thing, and don't necessarily have to be referring to anything historical. To, so to give you a concrete example of this, that city of Ai, the, the term Ai actually means the ruin or the heap of bricks. <laughs> and when's the last time you've heard of a city yeah. wanting to name themselves Pile of Ruins? Is, isn't that what Detroit means? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I'd yeah. say Detroit yeah. or Jersey, there's, yeah, there's some towns there. But... Uh, so you got a, you got a question there uh, whether or not that's historical, but it makes perfect sense. People living to the east of this huge mound of ruins. Where does this pile of rubble come from? Well, our boys back in the day fought these nasty individuals. Or why is there this huge stone blocking this cave Mm -hmm. near one of our cities? Well, Joshua chased a bunch of kings into there. And and in other words, these stories are – they are local legends a lot of times. Mm -hmm. They might have some memory of – campaigns that happened at that particular time. But someone in the Bible, the writers of Joshua, Mm -hmm. collected a lot of these ideological myths, a lot of these local folk tales and legends. Right. I mean, it's like, why is the Grand Canyon there? Because Paul Bunyan had a nail in his shoe, (laughs) right? I mean, (laughs) is there historical evidence for that? Eh, No, but it's a fun story. So... But somebody collects all these these uh, these stories and edits them into one complete narrative, one sweeping narrative of Joshua's conquest mm-hmm. of of the Holy Land. And um, is there any kind of motivation why why would somebody undertake that kind of project? Especially listeners who'd be familiar with our earlier episode, the disunity of the Bible, mm-hmm. and we've mentioned it several times on the show. The key to understanding a lot of things in the Hebrew Bible is looking at this King Josiah. Mm. King Josiah was one of the – now we're fast-forwarding much further into the future. Mm -hmm. King Josiah is one of the last kings of Judah, uh, the southern southern kingdom where Jerusalem was, uh, before the Babylonians conquered and destroyed the temple and everything else. Mm He is one of the last kings. This is where you may recall, as he's a young boy, the priests are renovating the temple in Jerusalem, and they find (laughs) in the crack of the wall, oh, look, there's this scroll, Deuteronomy. Oh, dear. We've been supposed to just be worshiping Yahweh. We had no idea. Whoops. (laughs) It says right here that if we had just worshiped Yahweh the whole time, we would have never been conquered by foreign lands. Mm Mm-hmm. It is, it's not a coincidence that the narratives you find in Joshua, Judges, and many of the other historical books uh, in the Hebrew Bible are part of the Deuteronomic history. Mm-hmm. These were edited by the same people who wrote that book of Deuteronomy. In other words, if you don't buy the line that this was found in a crack in the temple wall, it's more likely written by people in the 7th century at the time of Josiah mm-hmm. looking back. If you look at Josiah's personal ambitions for the kingdom of Judah, they seem to match almost perfectly with the ambitions of Joshua in this conquest. Mm-hmm. What now, do isn't they... that right after the northern kingdoms get conquered? And so the population of Judah increases yeah. 
if I understand it correctly, it's during this brief window when the Assyrians are have withdrawn out of the northern kingdom. Right. And so Josiah in Judah in the south actually has a realistic chance of maybe conquering these areas to the north and re-annexing all the land from these mm-hmm. other tribes. So he's painting himself as the new Joshua. Exactly. Makes he is sense. he's on the he's on the rise. Uh, what is he going to do? He's going to destroy worship in the highlands. Mm-hmm. He wants to centralize it in Jerusalem under the priesthood. He's he wants to destroy he wants to eradicate and make illegal any kind of uh, worship of these foreign deities. In other words, yes, Joshua matches the ambitions of Josiah. But what a handy thing to have all these folk legends and all and mm-hmm. tie them into one narrative that actually tells that story. Really, the message is to these scattered tribes with very diverse customs right. and, and beliefs, the message is, hey, look, we're one people. We are supposed to be under one law given by one God. And there was a time when we realized this. Mm-hmm. When, back when we realized this, nobody could stop us. We were back when we were loyal to the law, yeah. God backed us up. We can do that again. We need to return to traditional family values. <laughs> yes, exactly. Return to traditional Hebrew values. Yeah. And so, yeah, this conquest narrative is a very useful tool in preaching that message to the northern tribes who don't view themselves as allies to Judah. And it's a very uh, good tool for ramping up uh, Reformation efforts in his own kingdom. To make a very long story short, <laughs> if you're interested about that long story, uh, there, there's a whole lot of interesting stuff about King Josiah, about about the uh, the kingdoms of Judah and the kingdoms of Israel that might be good for a, a future episode sometime well down the road. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to some props and shit list. Um, and let's start off with a props shit list question mark. I'm not <laughs> what, sure which what, one it is. I vacillate. Yeah. Uh, Luke, why don't you uh, give us this one? Yeah, well, there was a release this week that got some publicity uh, but uh, from the Census Bureau because all our census data has is busy being analyzed now. Right. And, and uh but this one regards the geographical location, um, or actually the rate of the the level of divorce as a function of the geography and demographics. Mm. And the headline uh, for a lot of the this is from CNN. The headline is, "What's fueling Bible Belt divorces?" Uh, and as that indicates, the higher rate of divorce in the country, if you look at it regionally, is in the Bible Belt. Mm-hmm. Now, this is something that I think we might have addressed uh, in the in, our, in the midst of distant past, where contrary to what most people, the stereotype of that if you uh, have more religion, that you have less, more stable families and less divorce, right. that the relationship is actually somewhat the opposite. Not perfect correlation, but that in general, the more uh, religious regions of the country have actually a higher rate of divorce. So like we're talking here, for example, uh, in both men and women, uh, the highest rates of divorce were found in 
mostly in the South, Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, As opposed Kentucky. opposed to divorce rates of just men or just women? Well, that was actually one thing that was fishy is that why would it ever be different? And one thing that people often don't factor in is the remarriage rates oh, and that some people yeah. are more likely to be remarried and some right. just stay divorced. Fair enough. Hmm. Uh, so basically, yes. Yeah, so like Nevada is fairly high, but other than that, a lot of these country, the, the states cluster in the South and the lowest divorce rates are found in the Northeast, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York. Those liberal uh, bastions of uh, yeah. free love. So what's going on here? We've uh, Clearly, if you are in a mind of a, you know, a sociologist or a psychologist, you're thinking third variables here. So mostly they are age uh, at first mm-hmm. marriage sure. when, you, when you get married and education level. Those are the strongest right. predictors of divorce or not divorce is – uh, if you are, uh, especially in the teenage years, it flattens out. Like, for example, if you get married in your fifties, you don't have a much lower rate of divorce than if you got married in your thirties, but it makes a big difference if you get married in your teens, as right. opposed to mi- even mid twenties. Right. Yeah. I think that the median age right now for women is 26 and for men, it's about 28. But, uh, what happens is that in the areas of the country that have lower SES, like the South, they're poorer, less education. Those people are also happening to to get married earlier. Now, you can slice and dice the stats to see what's really driving it. Is it the religion? Mm-hmm. Is it the, uh, the socioeconomic status? Uh, some combination of the two. Uh, and so people debate about that. But, but f- as far as what I think is interesting to us is that it's ironic that religion, which tends to frown on divorce by encouraging people to be abstinent and not have sex uh, and to hurry up and, and get married so that you can yeah. have sex, they're actually shooting themselves in the foot later on by yeah. uh, increasing the risk that those people will divorce. Right. Mm-hmm. I just heard that one of my um, students was showing me a thing the other day where she went to a wedding where the couple had been dating 10 months and had never kissed. And their ceremony. No wonder they were in a hurry. And then they're getting married. Which oh, that's so creepy though. Which seems sweet to some people and creepy to others. Creepy. Sweet to who? Uh, The Christians were like, "Oh, that's that's the first time they've ever kissed." Is their marital? uh, And then the reception was really dramatic because they consummated their their relationship (laughs) right there uh, on the table. Yeah, yeah. I didn't ask. And the reception lasted about two minutes. (laughs) (laughs) A very painful, right, go awkward, awkward. <laughs> two minutes. <laughs> but anyway, so well, what the, the we were joking about it, but I don't know whether this is props or shit. In that, obviously, we that divorce is bad in terms of um, instability, especially if there's children involved. But in some cases, it's probably good to be divorced if the people are going to say. I hate you, and the only reason I'm with you is because God wants me to be. (laughs) So I'm just going to spitefully endure the rest of my life, shaking my fist at the sky. Why? That's right. (laughs) Well, um, maybe they're better divorced. (laughs) One story that's definitely on the shit list. Um, Right here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, making the national news once again for all the wrong reasons, (sighs) Calvin College. Just down the street from us, actually, um, just a couple miles away from where we record. I, I was reminiscing. Do you remember the last time they were on the shit list? Um, 
I don't remember. That's when they were approving uh, that the campus cops carry oh, sidearms. That's arms. right. That's right. <laughs> what? Calvin College was letting wow. their their campus police. It was in the wake of guns. one of those like Virginia school Pat, shootings. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Like yeah. And yeah, suddenly we decided the Renta cops on Calvin College needed to be packing heat yes. to ensure Jeez. that that hub of violence. That's right. Stop kissing. So (laughs) now they're making news because um, Professor uh, John Snyder was, shall we say, urged into early retirement (laughs) because he dared to suggest that Adam and Eve may not be real historical figures. (gasps) Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the city in which I was born. Um, Calvin College, they, and, and this is a, a tenured professor, um, well-respected, but he's so liberal as to suggest that evolution may be a real thing. Blasphemy. Yeah. And that Adam and Eve may and not have that the human been. race didn't start with two single individuals. I, this is a discussion yep. that occurs all the, times, uh, all the time in science departments of Christian colleges. I even remember yeah. when I saw that. Remember that PBS show on evolution narrated by Liam Neeson like 10 mm-hmm. years ago? Yeah, I still show the clips of that in my class, and they show the Wheaton College students talking yeah. in, like in a circle about the implications. I think it's of their geology class yeah, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And they're talking about the same thing, and one of the kids says, well, Paul says that if sin came in through one man and by mm-hmm. one man we're redeemed, so that's what I'm going to go with. It had to be – so this is like – I don't think it's news, but this is, I guess – what happens when a professor actually yeah. puts pen to paper I, I'm, or I'm surprised well, it wasn't even oh good well I'm surprised because I I don't think of Calvin as being that um right conservative that uh, um fundamentalist this seems like the kind of thing that you'd hear out of Oral Roberts University well, I think not it's, my, my take even, on it is that it's well, details have trickled. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree entirely yeah. with that assessment. Not to speak well of Calvin College. No, but but they're, they're you know. But I don't think of them. There's chain smokers on bad. campus. Yeah. You know, there's uh, they're academically they're pretty. It's probably because he wrote uh, for a prominent publication a prominent article that brought light to it, and then you get phone calls right. from all these conservative donors like I'm not giving my money to the Calvin. No, we we now and... know a few more details about. Uh, what actually went on. Um, this this course of study that Schneider was requesting a sabbatical right. uh, to to work more on his ideas. And boy, of, did he get it. How would Christianity, uh, can how would Christian theology have to change if we reject Adam and Eve? Mm-hmm. He was planning this as a, a sabbatical course of study. He had approval mm-hmm. from everyone else Nearly on this board. On, yeah. And the president himself of the school was on sabbatical and came back and read this document that had been circled around. And uh-huh. Everyone else seemed to be supporting at least the guy's right to, 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 to inquiry yeah, on right. this along this line. Uh, the president read this thing. Galen Biker, President Galen Biker. Hit the roof. Right. And then later in late in uh, September 2010 uh, – this President Biker, he publicly accuses Harlow and Schneider of violating the confessional statements. 
and right. breaking their because you have to sign a statement to right. teach their saying that you you know profess he wanted this and this yeah and this. he wanted Schneider out the door the the story that Harlow which is um, one of Schneider's colleagues yes. right right the story that Harlow tells because he's not bound to uh, any kind of uh, legal right. <laughs> silence right the story he tells is that uh, the president wanted Schneider out. Mm-hmm. Schneider because of this. Yeah, Schneider was going to press a suit, mm-hmm. and then they came to a mutual agreement uh, on his retirement. Meaning they gave him a pretty nice retirement. Yeah, package. yeah, they gave him a nice retirement package. Mm-hmm. He already had a job at Notre Dame waiting for him mm-hmm. that he could escape to. Oh, those Catholics. And so Schneider has had to keep his lip shut because right. part of this settlement was, okay, you're not going to do any more rebel rousing about right. the bullshit that's going on at, right. at Calvin College. But um, but his colleagues are like, well, we're not bound to this legal agreement, <laughs> exactly. so we're going to talk about this well, stuff. Well, and, and they're pointing out, and this is an article from our own uh, Grand Rapids Press, that uh, Calvin College is offering a lot of misinformation about – um, how the professor? Yeah, they want us him. to believe like, oh, it was all on very it was amicable, uh, amicable they, terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. not not true. Not like true. anyone um, buys that. Harlow actually uh, maintains that uh, Biker, when he publicly criticized um, Schneider for for breaking the um, all the, the different you know things that they sign on to. Right. Um, he actually says that Biker actually violated the college's processes and procedures provided by the Board of Trustees when he actually took the grievances first to the faculty. Uh, no, as opposed to going through the, the normal channels. Right. Of, uh, which so, is probably why he had standing for a lawsuit. Right. Right. Yeah, uh, here's here's my take on on this. There was a, there was a book written a while a few years ago called the I think it's called the Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. It was Mark Knoll, but basically his thesis was why is it that you have Christian liberal art schools but none of them rise to the level of like a major research university? Exactly. And it's tied my you know uh, it's tied to this this lunacy of you have academic freedom you can talk and research yep. and do whatever you want and we encourage you to think independently but uh, here's this little box and yep. you can't go outside that so basically if you are in, as this guy is in the sciences you're essentially signing a statement that says that you could you could think within constraints it's not it's like galileo yep. and so why would you i mean the whole purpose of being i guess maybe i'm idealistic here but uh, naively but is having intellectual freedom freedom isn't freedom if the, if you have this little boundary beyond which you can't go right. and so if, right. if you can never research as a biologist what you're not going to just oh all, right. all the dna evidence says that we descended from a population of a thousand ancestors or right. whatever ten thousand make any decent can't go there faculty that you have go to other institutions like yeah. notre dame because right. Catholic institutions like the one I went to are, or or many of them at least, are a little bit more open because they have things like they accept evolution. Well, they remember so. that whole Galileo business, and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, it, it might be best to change kind of with the walk time. with their tails but between their legs. There are people on the blogs that say, "Well, that's Calvin's prerogative. They shouldn't be working there if they if they signed a statement of faith. They shouldn't be." And, and I guess my response to that is, sure, if you want to take that tactic like they are a private thing, they can hire and fire depending on what they want. But again, if you don't have any pretensions to that you're giving quality uh, intellectual education and that you value right. academic freedom, if you're going to put boundaries like that yeah, on it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and as we uh, – you know, as, as you said, uh, Dave, that uh, you know, 
Calvin doesn't really have a reputation of being that fundamentalist. No. The faculty generally Maybe they should. <laughs> right. Well, it seems that they almost should now. Um, but if we if you look on their website under their uh, what we believe, uh, there's a little Q&A mm, there. Right, right. Uh, and, the, and one of the questions is, uh, how many of your teachers teach or believe creationism? How many theistic evolution? Yeah. And the, the answer, we believe that God created the world and that he still holds it in his care. And it is under his control. Some of our professors have, have uh, delved deep into the processes around God's creation and constant recreation. And you may find their work interesting and, expire, and inspiring. And <laughs> Way so, to avoid the question. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. But nice. they, they, they actually promote a book here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they say, check out Dr. Lauren Harzma and Dr. Deborah Harzma. It's a, it's a, a husband and wife. Yeah. Um, their book, uh, their book is Origins: A Reformed Look at Creation, Design, and Evolution. Mm. Uh, so they're not they they're clearly like several Calvin people whole, are willing. Yeah, right. Right. Doesn't seem to be so opposed to this. But well, Biker, the president, seems to be. Yeah, it seems to one one thing Dave one thing Dave learned at Aquinas and I learned at Grace Bible College uh, is. Um, the board of trustees, the wealthy donors and that sort of thing have a lot of power behind the scenes yeah. that you don't always see. And the president is often and, privy to yeah. that, um, whereas we are and, not. Yeah, and I've encountered, we've both encountered personally in our educations, pretty liberal professors who mm-hmm. uh, you were aware of scholarship and tried to teach some decent things about it. Yeah. Uh, who who are constantly being reined in uh, mm. because some parent somewhere was getting pissed off and writing uh, to a wealthy donor mm-hmm. that supports the college. And I'm sure many of the students are aware that their professors hold views that are, are not yeah. in, in accordance with things, but they know that the professors can't really be too vocal about yeah. saying that. So if you want to talk about evolution at Calvin Giant, they, they'll meet you in the parking yeah, garage. Yeah, a lot of <laughs> it. <laughs> Follow the clues. A lot of it. Yeah, no, you're, you're on not, the right track. Yeah, it's funny, <laughs> but he's not joking. That really is what it's... Trent's coat in a low-hanging I can go so far. You'll have I, to take it from here. I, I had a few moments where I had, you know, the arm put around, you know, like, hey, uh, well, I can see you're one of them that gets it. So right. here's the secret stuff that they're not telling you type of thing. Like, <laughs> he pulls we all, out a box from, like, yeah, behind a floorboard. Yeah, yeah. We all know the Bible isn't literal. <laughs> <laughs> we all know God doesn't oh. exist. We love the Didn't literature. Didn't quite go that far, but, uh, but yeah. So um, <laughs> now for props, and this is this is a a positive story. This is actually props. Uh, the West Memphis Three, who some of our listeners may be familiar with, um, I've talked about this on my other show, Reality Check, uh, quite a bit. The West Memphis Three are freed. This is a group of young men um, at the time in the early nineties. They were arrested, ages eighteen, seventeen, and sixteen for the murder of three Cub Scouts in West Memphis, Arkansas. Basically, they were arrested because the the so-called leader of the group, Damian Eccles, was a uh, self-professed Wiccan. And because he was kind of the weird kid in school, he dyed his hair black, he wore black clothes and, you know, hail Satan and all that stuff, um, it triggered... What um, we've talked about before on the show, the satanic panic from the 80s and early 90s. Wasn't a good time and place to be the local 
No. The little Heavy Wiccan. little kid. <laughs> yeah. local See, being the yeah. weird kid in Arkansas <laughs> is trouble. Um, and these three young men were arrested, uh, one of whom, Jesse Miss Kelly, um, gave a confession to the murder. Um, but we should point out Jesse Miss Kelly has an IQ of 72, um, has a uh, very low functionality um, and um, had a basically a forced confession without um, a lawyer present, without his parents present from the police where he gave a bunch of details that were demonstrably wrong about the murders. But the people of West Memphis liked this idea of an evil satanic cult that they could um, railroad and send to jail. Damien Eccles was actually on death row for 18 years, half their lives, these, these men have been in prison, and um, just this past week, they walked free. Awesome. Um, well, kind of. I mean, yes, it's great. They're free, but rather than being um, released because they are, in fact, innocent, which uh, is is been pretty obvious for, well, ever since the beginning, um, they walked free because they... Um, they struck a deal. Um, it's called an Alford plea, which allows them to maintain their innocence. They still claim they are innocent, but they acknowledge that if they were retried, a jury would probably still find them guilty. Now, that's bull. Right. Okay. Um, because <laughs> yeah. there's enough evidence out about the case now, thanks in part to HBO did a, a series of documentaries, Paradise Lost. One and two are out. Three is coming out soon. Um, wonderful documentaries if you want to know about uh, the case and, and get a real feel for the satanic panic um, of the time. You said it would be fun reading, but I got Paradise Lost and it was slogging through <laughs> poetry and Satan not, is like, what? Not uh, There was nothing. Where's the murder? I was kept turning pages waiting for the murder to start. I don't see any Cub Scouts in this game. <laughs> Paradise Lost. So, um, it, so they are free and they're on 10-year probation, but it's a completely unrestricted probation. It's basically an acknowledgement of the people of, of Arkansas to say, okay, we get that you're innocent of this <laughs> in all likelihood, but we don't want you suing don't us sue for yeah, wrongful we're covering our butts. And it stays on the record, unfortunately, that they were convicted of this <sighs> felony. Right. And, and the governor himself has said he will not um, um, grant them a pardon until someone else is charged right. with a crime. And, of course, they won't charge someone else with a crime because, for them, it's a closed case. But that governor's These men are, are guilty. In, in 14, so hopefully. Yeah, exactly. He's out in 2014, so um, hopefully... Or, or maybe the president could offer a presidential pardon of hey. these young men who are clearly innocent. But... Anyway, they are free, and uh, um, so that's good news. Yeah, I'd, I'd recommend that listeners go back and put on their Netflix queue the, the Paradise Lost movies, be, if for no other reason that that's our name, reasonable doubts, in a religious setting, but in a legal setting, how is it that you could have you know that uh, convictions uh, where there's still a reasonable doubt about innocence and guilt, and and that you have these community forces like you know the kid wears black. You'd think that would be irrelevant, or he listens right. to this yeah. type of music. How that's, is that taken as serious? That evidence? stuff matters in certain times yeah. and places. And of course, as we know, there there are no known accounts of actual satanic murder rituals in in modern history, right? 
the but FBI looked and couldn't find it. Couldn't any. find any or or child molestation rings, which we've talked about before on the show too. So, yeah, I'm certainly reasonable doubt to say the very least um, in that case. Let's wrap up with a little bit of polyatheism. We've talked a lot about the genocide of the Canaanites uh, perpetrated by the people of Israel, which, of course, didn't actually happen. Um, And we're all familiar with the God of Israel. But what about the God of the Canaanites? Well, first, of course, they didn't have just one God. It's really only later that people became so unimaginative that they started worshiping only one God. Rather than coming up with nifty stories about all sorts of colorful gods, let's just stick with one. It's way easier to remember his name that way. Lazy theology. So lame. So lame. Uh, The Canaanites had multiple gods, some of whom, like Baal, appear prominently in the Bible. Partly due to their biased approach to these gods, partly because of translation issues, and partly because of a general unwillingness to try to understand heathen cultures, There's a lot of confusion and lost information about Canaanite gods. For example, Baal is less of a name like Zeus or Quetzalcoatl and more of a title, meaning Lord. So really, you could be referring to any number of gods when you mention Baal, like if you spoke of the president, you could be referring to any people who has been president of something over the years. The god conjured by references to Baal is generally Marduk, the patron of the city of Babylon and supreme god of the Sumer Akkadian culture. And remember, much of the Hebrew Bible, as we talked about earlier, was written while the Jews were in exile and Babylon was pretty much the embodiment of all bad things. Hence, Baal becomes Beelzebub, which becomes tied to Satan, Um, or Uh, Baal refers to Hadad, son of the supreme god El. The same thing is true for El, though. Sometimes it is a reference to the supreme god El. Sometimes it is used as a reference of any top god or is a title for a monotheistic god. El should die. Yeah, exactly. For example, ever heard of a fella called Elohim or El Shaddai? Yeah. The great, not actually monotheistic god of Israel is El, at least in some sense, or, or maybe El- a lot of senses. Elvis. Elvis is God. Too. Absolutely. <laughs> he is the king. He's the supreme uh, king of rock and roll. Um, it gets really difficult to parse out, and as we talked about with the history of the Canaanites and with Israel, there's. Kel El. Sorry. El. Superman, yes. Um, there's a lot of um, overlap between them. And it's only when Israel finally um, tries to identify themselves as being different from the other groups that their L becomes different than the other L. Because, of course, they were both Semitic cultures. They shared similar linguistic roots and hence similar cultures and ways of thinking. So there are clear lines of division between the Canaanite supreme god and the later Jewish supreme god, but there's also a lot of blurry lines. El, like Elohim, is generally depicted as an old man. Unlike his Jewish counterpart, though, El likes to wear bullhorns on his head. Sweet. Not as a symbol of his horniness, though there's some of that, of course, or cuckoldry or anything like that, but as an image of power. 
Baal, Marduk, slash Hadad are often also associated with the bull, as we see in the story of the Ten Commandments. One, one of the prophets' visions of Yahweh included uh, a, a horned, bull-headed god. Uh, do you, does anyone remember who that was? It was the whole one with wheels and within wheels. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, that, isn't that, uh, The wheel in the sky? Wasn't that Ezekiel? Ezekiel? Oh, maybe, maybe, okay. yeah. Yeah, I think mm. that is it. Yeah, so there, I mean, clearly you can see yeah. the influence of El yeah. and on there's, the... There's bulls outside of, in, yeah. in the temple artwork and all sorts of oh, yeah. stuff. Yeah, absolutely. A and that's, there. that's El, who is also kind of uh, Elohim. Now, the Canaanite El openly acknowledges his wife, Asherah, as opposed to his Jewish doppelganger, who has tried to hide his female companion away in the closet. Or perhaps the kitchen is a better metaphor for the rabidly patriarchal tradition. Unlike the god of the Hebrews, though, El is also a god of heavy drinking. So immediately he's more interesting, of course. <laughs> and of course, the, the ancient Mesopotamians created beer, so... They knew from heavy drinking. Well, they, they created it before God created the world, apparently. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, El, like most good supreme gods, can't stop with just one wife. They're like potato chips. Yeah. <laughs> one, two, with pop. just one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he has multiple wives. And in fact... His first two wives are, are these women who wash up on shore, and he, <laughs> he cooks a bird and says, tell me when the bird is done cooking, and however you address me, either as husband or as father, that's how we'll live from here on. And they both address him as husband, which is kind of the less creepy of the two. But he really wanted them to call him daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Um, I don't know why I said that. So <laughs> he also has many, many children, most notably Hadad, Lord of the Sky, Yam, Lord of the Sea, Yams, and Mot, Lord of the Dead. These three sons are echoed in the three elder brothers of the Greek pantheon, Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades, Aren't respectively. Aren't there uh, parts in the Old Testament where, where Yahweh uh, fights Yam? Yeah. Absolutely. And the there's the scene where I forget which prophet it is, but there's an altar to Yahweh as well as an altar to Baal. Yeah. Right. Um, They're going to see who could ignite the wood. Yeah. Who could ignite the That's one of the clearest examples in the Hebrew Bible that this mm. is not a monotheistic religion. There's another god. It's He's just not as cool as it's, ours. It's monolatrous. Monolatrous? Yes. I don't know that word. Yes. That's a word. <laughs> I, go with, I go with henotheistic. As in, they're, like they're polytheistic, one. but they only will worship. But they just worship the one. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Good word. Well, it's like we have, there's a big ten, and you know that you acknowledge that there's the football teams, but exactly. your team is the uh, whoever. Exactly. So um, L shows up also in Phoenician texts, possibly the connection to the ancient Greeks, um, Aramaic, Hittite, Amorite, and Ugaritic sources as well as the Hebrew Bible. So this guy is all over the place and maybe the earliest or more likely one of the earliest images of the bearded old man in the sky. Though actually he seems to have preferred the Mesopotamian rivers over the sky, which may be in fact why there isn't a shrine to El, 
because nature provided a better one than could ever be built by his worshippers. As with most Mesopotamian cultures, right, we have the Tigris and the Euphrates that were really mm. the, the heart of civilization, the cradle of civilization, as it were. Try as they might, the Israelites clearly did not succeed in wiping out every trace of Canaanite culture because we still have El hanging around, wearing his bullhorns and reminding us that there are always more gods, even if they actually are kind of the same god, worth not believing in. And that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, we'll be back soon. No genocide, probably, unless, who knows, the news is Something terrible happens. Oh, <laughs> Don't give us a reason to talk about genocide again next so, week. Um, so we will be back soon. In the meantime, go to our website, which is now located at freethoughtblogs.com slash doubts. Freethoughtblogs.com slash doubts is the way to get uh, our most recent posts. Comment uh, there. Send us an email at doubtcast at gmail.com. Write us a review on iTunes, which is always greatly appreciated. Share the show with a friend. And we'll be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. Do we have a theme song for that? No. <laughs> we should. We should. We should. It's it's fine. <laughs> it's it's hard to find summertime theme and genocide <laughs> music uh, uh, in one package. What's that one like surfy song like theme from a summer's day? <laughs> you are looking <laughs> in the wrong. I places, combed my, my catalog and could not find anything that matched that. I think Dave Matthews has something, doesn't he? <laughs> They're all. Act, yeah, that's actually, that would be a good point. Right, Don't Drink might. the Water is about the closest I could See? think of. I'm kind of ashamed to have known that song. I'm really not a big Dave Matthews fan. <laughs> Please don't think of me that way, audience. Uh -huh. um, but anyways... <laughs>